Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Star Cells in God. This is the podcast where we explore how the latest discoveries in science provide evidence for God's existence, God's nature and character, and the reliability of Scripture. This podcast is sponsored by uh, Reasons to Believe. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, I invite you to visit our website, www.reasons.org. Also, you can follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. And then last but not least, uh, go to our YouTube channel and subscribe, Reasons to Believe 1, and set the notification so that you're reminded the next time there is a new episode of Star Cells in God. My name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I'm joined today by Dr. Hugh Ross, who is an astronomer and also a Christian apologist and a pastor. And we're going to be talking about a couple of discoveries. I'm going to be talking about ATP as the cell's energy currency and how we can use insights about ATP to make a case for God's uh, role in the origin and the design of life. And Hugh, you're going to talk to us about French fries French fries, and, and you know, knowing that you're a biochemist, I've got to bring in some biochemistry, French fries and acrylamide. So I thought, hey, that's going to help. You know, Fuzz is going to get excited about both topics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Familiar with both. <laughs> okay, that's great. Well, um, this, it's a group of Chinese uh, scientists who decided to take advantage of the British bio uh, data bank mm-hmm. because in Britain uh, they've – you know, gotten a large number of their population that they've been following over the course of many years about their diet. And they're basically using that to try to develop uh, some new strategies for improving the health, not only of people in Britain, but worldwide. And so what this Chinese science team did is they basically took advantage of that database. And they pulled out about 141,000 uh, adults from the United Kingdom and these were adults uh, over, who were studied over a course of 11.3 years. Mm-hmm. But they only looked at adults that had detailed knowledge of their dietary practices over that period and also detailed knowledge of their mental health over that period. And so there were a lot that didn't make the cut. But they wound up with a huge database, 141,000 people is a lot of people. And so what they noticed in the database is that uh, people in Britain who consume more than uh, one fried food uh, portion per day, so that would be like fried eggs, uh, a hamburger, uh, french fries, anything fried. So uh, if they consume more than one portion per day on average, what they notice is that that subset of the 141,000 had a much higher level of uh, symptoms of anxiety and depression. Mm. And we're talking clinical anxiety and depression. Because after all, all of us go through episodes Mm -hmm. of depression and anxiety, but clinical is where it becomes Mm. serious enough that you need to see a doctor, Mm -hmm. you need to get treatment, have some kind of therapy. Uh, And so like those who are consuming more than one fried food portion per day, uh, more than a 12% elevated risk Mm. of uh, suffering from clinical anxiety and a near 8% risk of uh, clinical depression. Mm. And so this motivated them to say, okay, well, what kinds of fried foods Mm -hmm. are really, and what they noticed was people that were 
eating fried potatoes. Ah. Say more than, uh, you know, they had a serving of fried potatoes every day. And, uh, you know, a lot of people do that. They'll go, have, they'll have a hamburger mm-hmm. and fried uh, French fries. That counts as two servings. Right. So, and as you can imagine, there are people that actually do that almost on a daily basis. But what they discovered was it's fried carbohydrates mm. that especially give you an elevated risk. So fried eggs, a fried hamburger uh, doesn't nearly drive up mm-hmm. the anxiety and depression that if you've, say, had fried carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And so, and what they notice is the most common fried carbohydrate that people eat are fried potatoes. Right. Potato chips, French fries would be two examples. Right. Uh, but they said, uh, you know, other kinds of uh, carbohydrates, especially the simple carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. So the study actually showed that, you know, having uh, fried sweet potatoes, sweet potato fries, uh, not nearly as problematic as uh, white potatoes, because white potatoes is a simpler carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to discern that much. And then they said, well, let's dig a little deeper in this, because uh, they cited research papers that noted uh, that you know any carbohydrate, uh, where they're cooked at high heat or they're fried, mm-hmm. and so uh, you know even if you're baking them, uh, if you're baking them at high heat, you can cause a problem. But they're citing papers that basically said, you know, carbohydrates that are either uh, cooked through high heating or through frying uh, produce acrylamide. Mm. And for a number of years, as you're well aware, acrylamide has been noted mm. as something that's, uh, you know, a neurotoxin. Yep. And said, well, maybe that's the cause of the anxiety mm. and the depression. So what they wanted to do is put that to the mm. test. Now, you know, it would be unethical to take a sample of humans and load them up with acrylamide and see what happens to them. So I said, we're not going to do that. So they needed to find an animal proxy. And they wanted an animal proxy where the animal is social because mm-hmm. that's kind of what's going on with depression and anxiety is people have a loss of sociability. So the animal they chose was a zebrafish because mm-hmm. zebrafish, I mean, they're small you can raise them in large numbers and study mm. them, uh, but they also have the characteristic that they're very social mm. with one another. So they basically were feeding uh, these zebrafish uh, high doses of acrylamide and seeing what happens. And also they, they could sample those out mm-hmm. and they check what's going on in the brain chemistry. So that's kind of what half the research is all about. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they discovered is that uh, these zebrafish Number one, they noted uh, that when they were on, they were given a uh, acrylamide, that uh, they would tend to isolate themselves from the rest of the mm-hmm. zebrafish, and also they lost their uh, desire to explore. Mm-hmm. They basically would just sit in one little area mm-hmm. that they felt comfortable with. The other zebrafish would be interested in exploring. They wouldn't, and they weren't interested in socializing. And so they looked at that as clear symptoms Mm-hmm. of anxiety and depression. So they said that's probably explaining why mm-hmm. people on a, you know, a fried mm-hmm. food uh, mm-hmm. diet are suffering higher levels of anxiety mm-hmm. and depression. But also looking at the brains of these zebrafish that were being fed you know, modest doses of acrylic, what they noticed was that uh, you resulted in elevated levels 
of GABA and glutamine in the brain. Mm -hmm. And again, there's research showing that disrupts, it actually kills neurons mm. and disrupts neural function. And so this explains, and then they, what really surprised them is they noted it disrupts uh, mm. cholesterol metabolism and glucose metabolism. So they're basically <clears throat> saying it's not only causing brain disorders yeah. and uh, brain dysfunction, uh, but uh, it's actually causing a lot of other uh, mm -hmm. bodily uh, functions. And it actually ties in with another dietary study, uh, which basically says people who consume a lot of simple sugar, uh, mm -hmm. refined grains, and uh, fried foods and processed foods, uh, they have higher levels of cancer, mm -hmm. higher levels of cardiovascular disease, as uh, well as uh, mental illness. Mm -hmm. and several others. So they were saying, well, maybe the real culprit here is the fried foods. Mm. You know, sure, those other things are a problem. And so they're basically saying, is fried foods, fried foods well, a more dangerous thing to consume mm -hmm. uh, than simple sugar, the refined okay. grains, uh, and the processed meats? And they said, yeah, it does come out. It seems to be the one mm. that's really linked uh, with disrupting cholesterol metabolism and glucose metabolism which would explain why, okay, if you're tired all the time because mm -hmm. you're not able to metabolize your cholesterol and uh, your glucose, that could explain the depression and the anxiety. Mm -hmm. So, and the bottom line is they said, uh, we need to do more studies uh, because it'd be interesting to see if uh, toast is a problem. Mm. I mean, you know, if, you, right. if you're toasting white bread, that's a simple carbohydrate, right. you're bringing it up to heat, and uh, they hinted that it's probably the level of heat that's a concern. And so if you're lightly toasting your bread, it's probably not a big deal. Right. But they said more studies need to be needed. Basically, they were establishing, okay, we got enough here to realize consuming a lot of French fries or potato chips is not a good idea. Uh, but let's actually get some more detailed studies done. Right. And they were basically the first to do this kind of in-depth study. Mm. So they're basically saying... We need more studies like this. But having read the paper, and I got the paper right here, mm -hmm. it's in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. In my opinion, they've done enough mm -hmm. uh, to warrant uh, that you know, people should avoid right. uh, consuming more than one. And, of course, what they want to know is, well, how much fried food consumption is a problem? Right. Having fried eggs three days a week may not be an issue. Right. Uh, but they certainly established right. having a hamburger and French fries six days a week. That is a problem. Right. Uh, but it'd be good to actually get some numbers on this. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is a, a health issue. It's relatively easy to solve. Right. And their comment was more studies. And uh, I think they even got a slide here of French fries. So... <laughs> Now you're just rubbing it in. Now I'm just rubbing it in. <laughs> well, I looked at this and said, you know, isn't it interesting when you walk by a fast food restaurant, they always make sure that the smell of fried food uh, wafts out. And if you're downwind from a fried food restaurant, you may have eaten two hours ago, but when that smell hits your nose, you feel hungry yeah. and you're tempted to go in. Uh, so, uh, you know, 
maybe just avoid being downwind of a fast food <laughs> restaurant would also be a good idea. <laughs> so any comments? I mean, you're a biochemist. Yeah, yeah. You probably studied a lot no, I mean, of acrylamide. Yeah, well, I mean, I have worked with acrylamide. Usually as a you, we would polymerize it to form polyacrylamide gels that we'd use to analyze, you know, protein mixtures or or people would use it to separate, you know, DNA molecules and things like that. So it's a very common chemical, and it would we um, were very very careful when we handled acrylamide, you know, for that reason. When you polymerize it, it's you know the polymer is not dangerous, but the the monomer, the, the monomer is the acrylamide is, <laughs> and you know, and it, I'm just sitting here thinking it's interesting. You know that that carbohydrates seem to be the culprit. I imagine that it, you know you have to introduce nitrogen somehow into the into the molecule. So probably carbohydrates reacting with amino acids or other nitrogen compounds that would be in foods naturally is probably where the acrylamide is being generated. So it's you know interesting to me in terms of how that acrylamide is generated. But I'm not surprised <clears throat> that it could be. <clears throat> yeah, let's, well, that was missing from the paper. Uh, they didn't exactly show you how it's happening. Right. They just said, we know it is happening. Right. Because we can actually measure acrylamide production as a result of people eating right. these fried foods. And then with the fish, they could tell that, that something's going on there as yeah. well. Yeah. But it'd be really interesting to figure, okay, what is right. happening when you consume fried foods? Because right. maybe they can come up with a supplement Right. That you could eat so that you could enjoy your French fries yeah. and not have the acrylamide problem. That is remarkable in terms of just how interdisciplinary the work was, you know, in terms of epidemiological data and then just some good old-fashioned food chemistry and and some interesting, you know, toxicity experiments. And the fact that this British uh, database even exists. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, that that's helpful. Well, you know, that, and that you know brings up a, a, a concern that a lot of people have is that those databases people are concerned about in terms of losing privacy, right? But on the other hand, those databases are incredibly invaluable. I think in in Iceland or fin, I think it's Iceland where they have uh, a relatively small population and they've got similar kind of a database that covers the entire. Population. I think it's even a genetic database. Of, I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's 300,000 people where you, yeah. you've got a, a gene record of, of the entire population. Yeah, yeah. And basically what these uh, Chinese scientists were saying is, you know, it'd be good if we had more than just this one database. Right. So, yeah. I don't know. So, Fuzz, are you going to stop eating French fries? Well, I'll <laughs> just, I just won't eat them six days a week. Okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, you are done. I, I'm done. Sure. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, let, we'll move on to to, to my topic. And uh, um, you know, Hugh, uh, cryptocurrency is in, in in the news quite a bit these days. There's a lot of buzz around cryptocurrency because there are people that are claiming that by decentralizing currency, by creating the means for anonymous transactions, it's going to be disruptive in terms of the world's economies. And, uh, Makes it easier to launder money, though. It does, <laughs> right? There, there are good and bad things with cryptocurrency. Well, it's interesting because people are also interested in it because they they in, are investing in cryptocurrency. In fact, one of my daughters 
is does cryptocurrency investing, and she's trying to get me to do it. And as I've read a little bit about cryptocurrency, I don't know that I fully understand what actually gives cryptocurrency its value, right? And uh, you know, I'm I'm familiar with blockchains and all that fun stuff, and how you know Bitcoin is you know a new Bitcoin is generated every time certain blockchains come together, but I just don't understand it. So I'm not willing to invest money in something I don't understand. But this whole idea of cryptocurrency to me is fascinating because it really raises questions about what actually is currency, right? And uh, and I remember taking economic classes in college, which I enjoyed thoroughly. If I didn't become a biochemist, I very well could have become an economist. I enjoyed economics that much. But we talked about currency, you know, and, and what actually currency is and how currency functions in economies. And, you know, I'm of the opinion that, um, that when it comes to human inventions, currency may actually be one of the most ingenious inventions human beings have ever produced and that it may be more responsible for it, the ability of human beings to advance civilization than maybe even the invention of the wheel. Now, I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but uh, but currency is absolutely indispensable to make to allow economies to function efficient efficiently. If you didn't have currency, we would be forced to barter, and that's one of the most inefficient ways for an economy to operate, and it would stifle economic growth. And um, I'm going to just tell a little story here to, to drive home that point, and that actually relates to, to the discovery I want to talk about. But uh, in a sense, currency is, is basically any kind of medium that holds economic value, right? And if you didn't have currency, let's say that I, I worked for a farmer who raises citrus. And so after a day's worth of labor, he pays me by giving me citrus fruit, right, grapefruits and oranges and, and lemons. Now I need a pair of shoes. So I go to the cobbler, and the cobbler uh, is willing to sell me shoes, but he doesn't want citrus. So I got to find out what he wants. Then I got to go to that person that makes that and hope that that person wants citrus fruit. If he doesn't, then I've got to go to somebody else and find out what this guy wants and go to that person and so you wind up with and this. You got to do all that before the citrus goes moldy, right? Yes, right, <laughs> right. So, so in other words, it's an incredibly inefficient system. And if I finally find somebody who's willing to take the citrus, then I've got to work my way backward in order to get a pair of shoes. Whereas, if you have currency, which is just simply any medium that again holds economic value, then I can receive currency for my day's labor. And I can use that currency to purchase whatever I want with that, that you know, vendor being confident that by receiving that currency, they can use it to make a purchase that they want. So the idea here is that <clears throat> currency is really this ingenious human invention that makes highly efficient economies possible. Now, it's interesting that the cell makes use of currency as well. And this currency in the cell is in the form of a molecule that stores energy. So instead of having economic value, what's important in the cell is energy. Right. That energy is used to drive metabolic reactions. And metabolism is just simply a, a broad term that refers to any chemical process 
taking place inside the cell. But these metabolic reactions are producing building block materials that are, are then in turn assembled into the components of the cell. All of the, this, these reactions require energy. Uh, there are other uh, metabolic reactions that are just simply necessary to maintain the cell uh, in, a, in a living state. Others, other metabolic processes are necessary for cell growth, for cell replication. So metabolism, again, requires energy, and it's responsible for, for life being able to exist. Now, that, that energy comes from breaking down uh, what we might call foodstuff molecules, carbohydrates, which we just talked about, fats, for example. And when they're broken down, the chemical bonds that are broken release energy that the, the cell then makes use of to drive metabolic reactions. Now, if the cell operated analogous to a barter economy, then what you'd have to do is couple one metabolic reaction to another, meta, to another metabolic reaction very specifically. Which, and if you're not, if that particular compound isn't available in the cell, then the necessary metabolic reaction can't take place. So it's, it would be such a highly inefficient way for metabolism to work in a bartering type right. of manner that I even question if life would be possible. But what the cell does is, again, ingenious. It makes use of a compound called ATP right. as the cell's energy currency. So when you know, fats or sugars are broken down, that energy that's liberated is ultimately used to produce ATP. And then ATP can be broken down to liberate energy to drive metabolic reactions. And it's, a, it's, a uni, it's universal in the cell in terms of its ability to function as this energy currency, and it's actually universal among all life forms. Every life form uses ATP as the energy currency. And so this is a, uh, a, a, a cartoon showing the structure of, of ATP, and it stands for adenosine triphosphate. So it uh, starts with a sugar called a ribose, and then attached to the one prime position is a nucleobase called adenine. And then attached to the five prime position of the sugar is a phosphate group right. that's joined via an ester linkage. That's called the alpha phosphate. And then there's the beta and the gamma phosphates that are joined by a, a special kind of bond called a phosphoanhydride linkage, which is a high energy bond. And so when that bond is broken, it'll liberate energy and in order to form ATP, it forms from the reaction of ADP, adenosine diphosphate, and an inorganic phosphate. And so this is <clears throat> showing the reaction in where uh, the phosphoanhydride linkage is broken and energy is released for the cell to use. And you have this ATP-ADP cycle that takes place where uh, the, when food stuff is broken down, ATP molecules are formed from ADP and inorganic phosphates. And then when ATP, uh, it, when energy is needed, uh, the, the ATP is broken down into ADP in again, inorganic phosphate. So you've got this, this cycle that takes place. And <clears throat> the ratio of ATP to ADP actually gives you information about the energy status of the cell. And so if the energy status is low, ADP dominates over ATP. If the energy status is high, ATP dominates over ADP. And so this is a, an incredibly elegant system 
that exists inside the cell that is really identical to the type of currency that we would use in economic systems. And it makes very efficient metabolism possible inside the cell. It's an ingenious system. And, and in fact, you could probably, on this basis alone, make an argument uh, for God's existence and role in the origin and the design of life, kind of a watchmaker type of argument, right? That, that currency is a human invention, that it's an ingenious invention that makes efficient economies possible. And what we see is the, the direct analog to that inside the cell, you know, where I see, again, the use of ATP as an energy currency as a brilliant, ingenious aspect of, of metabolic processes. Now, this paper, did it discuss the trading of ATP that goes on inside the cell? Well, we haven't, we haven't gotten to the paper yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 yeah, go ahead. Go ahead with that. No, I'm just asking that question because, to me, we've known about ATP <clears throat> for a long time. But I think what may be fascinating, how do the different components of the cell actually trade ATP? How do they make the currency work? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, the the ATP molecules are everywhere, right? And they most of the ATP in eukaryotic cells is made inside mitochondria, and there's actually an ATP transporter that will move a molecule of ATP. So that's the bank inside the cell. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, or the 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 mint where the money is being printed. Right. And then the ADP that's uh, been spent or that's been generated from ATP that's been spent gets pumped into the, so it's an, it's an anti-porter where mm -hmm. ATP goes out, ADP comes in, right? And then inside the mitochondria, more ATP is generated. So you've got these different pathways that are moving the ATP <clears throat> in and out of mitochondria, but it's essentially, you, you know, available in solution everywhere in the cell, you know, so... Uh, so the, the components have ready access to it. But, it, you know, it's interesting because ATP, again, is universal, which means that it must have been present as the energy currency in the last universal common ancestor, if you're thinking about the, the origin, origin of life, life yeah. you know, in, in evolutionary terms. In fact, it probably would have had to have been present in organisms that preceded LUCA. And, and so it's a, it's a question, really, how does AT, where does ATP come origi from originally? Yeah, yeah, how does it originate? Because you cannot, I, at least I struggle as a biochemist to envision a scenario where you have a bartering kind of metabolism because that would be so inefficient that it would be very difficult for the protocells to become more and more complex. You almost have to institute the ATP as the energy currency all at once because it's such an integrated system with respect to metabolism. You know, and it's not just simply that the cells make use of ATP. That ATP has to literally bind to either the active site or allosteric sites on proteins. They have, there has to be this high affinity and this ability then to either break down that bond, you know, the phosphoanhydride linkage to produce inorganic phosphate or transfer the phosphate to, you know, a, an OH group to make a phosphoester. If you can't do that, then, you know, the, the energy currency is going to be useless. So it's not just simply having ATP available, but you literally have to have the machinery in place for each enzyme in the cell to process ATP. 
So it's such an integrated system that if it doesn't come into existence all at once, you're, you're not going to get there in a stepwise manner because you might be able to envision very simple protocells where there's a bartering kind of economy going on, but you can't get much more complex than that. Once you start growing the complexity, the inefficiency would, would make really any kind of evolutionary progress beyond that very difficult. So it's a very powerful argument, you know, in terms of really can you explain this origin through chemical evolution and the similarity to, um, you know, to, to human economies, human inventions that I think you could use to make a, a design argument, a, a, oops, a type of watchmaker argument. Uh, but now the, the big question on the table is this, why ATP? So biochemists are interested why ATP was selected as the energy currency. So one model would be, this is just a happy accident of evolution. It's just historical contingency. The, the other explanation is maybe there actually is a reason why ATP is chosen. And, you know, over the years, biochemists have suggested different ideas, uh, but it, there does seem to be a rationale for ATP. And as, as I pointed out, <clears throat> when we looked at the structure of ATP, it's essentially not only functioning as a energy currency, it also doubles in its function as one of the building blocks to make RNA molecules. And so there, there are four nucleotides that are used to make RNA. It'd be ATP, GTP, right. uh, CTP, and then UTP. And, um, and so it's interesting that ATP doubles as an energy currency as a molecule as well as, again, one of the building blocks of RNA because what it does is it now links the energy status of the cell to gene expression. So the information that's in DNA codes for proteins and you don't want the cell to begin to start producing proteins if the energy status is low. If the energy status is low, not only will you not have enough ATP, but you won't have enough of the building block materials to make RNA. So that, that linkage between energy currency and gene expression to me is probably uh, why ATP is the energy currency. It's a, it's a brilliant... Now, is this an issue for DNA or not? Well, it's not an issue for DNA because DNA is using, a, is using uh, ATP, but it's, it's a deoxy. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a different sugar. Different sugar. Right. Okay. So it, yeah, it, and, and actually using ATP versus the deoxy version of it, which would be the building blocks for DNA, makes sense because it's actually more energetically expensive to make the, the deoxy ATP versus the, the ATP based on ribose. Removing that OH group and replacing it with a hydrogen is an energy expensive step. And so you're using ATP as not only, again, because it's part of this pool that links gene expression to energy status, but it's relatively inexpensive to make. In fact, if you compare ATP to GTP, it's less expensive to make ATP for the cell than GTP. Wow. So that, that makes sense, right? Because mm -hmm. It's because GT, the, the nucleobase is more complex in GTP. Now, why not CTP or UTP? Well, it turns out having that purine, which is a fused two-membered ring versus a single ring, which you see in UTP and CTP, again, makes sense because the purine is more hydrophobic 
and therefore is going to interact more tightly with proteins, which is necessary for ATP to then be functioning as an energy currency. So in other words, there's a really, there's a very elegant reason or set of reasons why ATP seems to be selected as the energy currency. It's not hap a haphazard outworking of evolution. It'd be very difficult to come up with an alternate currency. <laughs> right. It's hard to envision what would be an alternative. Right. Now, this leads us to the paper <laughs> that I, the long introduction there, slow burn. But this is a, a paper published recently <clears throat> by a, um, a team from the University College of London. And the, 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 the lead researcher, the principal investigator is a guy named Nick Lane. And he's a, becoming a pretty well-known origin-of-life researcher who is very interested in questions about the evolutionary origin of, of bioenergetics. So he takes a bioenergetics approach to the origin of life. And his question was, why ATP? And he thought, well, maybe there might be a prebiotic explanation for why ATP. And he, he and his team were speculating that maybe ATP was selected because a compound called acetylphosphate will preferentially phosphorylate ADP as opposed to GTP, CTP, or UTP, right? So, and this is a structure of acetylphosphate. It's a simple molecule, actually. And it turns out that people believe that this would have been possibly at, prevalent at high levels on the early Earth. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, at hydrothermal vents, you can get thioacetate, which forms, which is a high energy, high energy molecule. And that thioacetate in the presence of phosphate will form acetylphosphate. So it's a very, it's a very simple reaction. And then it turns out that acetylphosphate is a very effective phosphorylating agent. It'll phosphorylate ribose. It'll phosphorylate ADP into to ATP to form ATP. Uh, and so they, they speculate, well, maybe there's something about that reaction that led to the selection of ATP as, a, as the energy currency. So they did a series of experiments where they used all kinds of different phosphorylating agents, and they looked at those agents' ability to phosphorylate ADP, GDP, CDP, and UT, UDP. And they discovered that acetyl phosphate will selectively phosphorylate ADP much to a much greater degree than the other nucleobases, which is very interesting. But the reaction requires iron in the plus three state. Any other metal isn't going to work. And they actually uh, developed a, a, a mechanism for what they think is going on there. But the bottom line is they're arguing that this is a really unusual chemical reaction that is that takes place that preferentially will produce AD, ATP from ADP, right? And so these are some quotes that, that I pulled from the paper. Uh, the emergence of ATP as a universal energy currency of the cell was not a result of a frozen accident, but arose from the unique interactions of ADP and ACP. This implies that ATP could have become the universal energy currency of life not as the endpoint of genetic selection or as a frozen accident, but for fundamental chemical reasons. Our results suggest that ATP became established as a universal energy currency in a prebiotic monomeric world on the basis of its unusual chemistry in water, 
It was very surprising to discover the reaction is so selective in the metal ion, the phosphate donor, and the substrate with molecules that life still uses. So let's kind of put this all together. What we, what we have here is this very ingenious use of an energy currency that makes life possible, that allows us to make kind of a, a watchmaker argument for God's role in the origin in the design of life. It's very difficult to envision how you would, you would get the level of integration you need for ATP to function as that energy currency through chemical evolutionary scenarios. ATP has this highly unusual set of properties that makes it ideally suited as an energy currency, which suggests it's not haphazard. There's a rationale there. And what these scientists have shown is that if you're looking at the origin of life from evolutionary terms, it's not natural selection that, that chose ATP. It's not a, a frozen accident, but it's fundamentally the chemistry, the laws of chemistry that allow for this highly unusual reaction that just happens to produce ATP as, as the, 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 produce the ATP molecule. Now, there are some fundamental problems with this study. For example, the source of phosphate on the early earth probably wasn't readily available. Yeah, phosphate's relatively rare. Right, and it's insoluble. Yes, and what about the uh, iron-3? Yeah, iron-3 would be very rare. But you'd, most of the iron would be in the plus-2 state. So you could question the prebiotic relevance of the, of the work that they did, and, and that would be legitimate to do. And, you know, it's very tempting to do that. However... What is interesting to me is even if you adopt an evolutionary perspective for life, isn't it highly – isn't it remarkable the coincidences that you see here, that the chemistry is such that it uniquely forms ATP? So if, if ATP emerged very early – now, of course, even generating ADP in a prebiotic scenario is highly unlikely, but let's just say for the sake of argument – you had ADP around, you had phosphate around, and iron-3 around. It's remarkable that the chemistry and the conditions of the earth would be such that ATP would naturally form. And it's, this happens to be that molecule with the just right set of properties that make it so ideal as an energy currency. And the whole concept of, of a biochemical energy currency is incredibly ingenious. So when you start stacking this together you've got this really powerful argument for an anthropic principle, right? That, 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 you know, that the energy metabolism in the cell is, seems to be predetermined, prescribed. You have to fine tune the periodic table and you got to fine tune the chemistry for this to even be conceivable. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the, yeah, the, the amount of fine tuning, you know, and this is just another example of fine tuning in a prebiotic context, but it, it highlights the fact that if you are approaching the origin of life strictly in evolutionary terms, you've got a problem here because it's this unusual chemistry that's prescribed by the laws of nature that is actually responsible for biochemistry. It's not a frozen accident. It's not natural selection. And once you start describing life in those terms, it's deeply teleological. You can't escape design. You can't escape intentionality. You can't escape purpose. Well, especially when you consider just how much ATP you need 
Oh, yeah. I mean, having a couple of molecules isn't going to do it. No. You need a lot of it in a concentrated region. And I look at the iron-3 problem, the phosphorus problem. Yeah. It's like getting enough ATP for this to be realistic. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. But, but again, you've got this, you know, that if you, if, even if you approach, you know, the origin of life in evolutionary terms, you can't escape the design. I mean, you and I would say that that design, you know, is, is evident even in the, you know, the, the special properties of well, ATP. you need some kind of supernatural mind that's able to pick out the few iron three right. uh, atoms that you need, get the phosphorus in the right, uh, right. chemical state and assemble it all right. so that you got enough. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, you know, the, I, I just found this to be, you know, a fascinating discovery, a bit, you know, convoluted to get to get there. But uh, well, it reminds me of uh, Fred Hoyle saying, you know, trying to make the evolutionary model work is equivalent to speculating that a tornado goes through an iron mine and an aluminum mine and out comes a fully functional aircraft. Yeah. So yeah, a similar problem. It, very similar problem. Yeah. Okay, well, that's all I've got. Uh, so um, well, I guess we can bring everything to a close here. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for joining us uh, for Star Cells and God. Uh, I would encourage you to make sure you go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One, and subscribe. And then also set the notification button so you're alerted when the next episode of Star Cells and God drops. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, RTB underscore official. And then last but not least, uh, make sure you go to our website, reasons.org. Until next time, remember, the more we discover about science, the more we have reasons to believe.